calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode 26. Four. Decades of fighting demons and dealing with intricate church politics, not to mention the intimidation and manipulation practiced by Team Two, hadn't scared Manchu as much as that moment in Guatemala with the angel. And one shining moment of beauty and blood, he'd been changed. Still, he had found it helpful in the years following Guatemala to study body language, both of humans and demons. Humans were easier to read and anticipate. Keep your body language neutral, let them get emotional, and do not speak first. The problem was, Hilary Sansone didn't get emotional. He sat in the understated yet expensive office of Team Two, watching Sansone stare right back at him. The first time Menchu had heard the American phrase, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth, he'd thought of Sansone, cold and dedicated to her work. The few times he had seen her outside of the Vatican, in the guise of a civilian enjoying Rome, she had seemed friendly and approachable. But behind that desk, inside that suit, she was team two. Looking directly into her pale eyes can make anyone nervous. Stories about Hilary Sansone circulated around the office. People tended to blurt things to her. Once, a stranger on the bus confessed, unprompted, that he was cheating on his wife. I just have one of those faces, she joked, when she joked. Rumor had it that years ago, the Monsignor of Team Two had asked Sansone if she ever thought about becoming a nun and putting her organizational flair in direct service to God. They would have found it more convenient, she had confided in Menchu during one of their rare encounters outside work, if she were a man so she could take confession. Since she had no interest in being a man and less interest in becoming a nun, she remained in her current role. After a minute, the smallest smile twitched at her lips. She had caught on to the game. She leaned back in her chair, crossed her legs, and regarded Manchu like an interesting insect. 
Manchu reviewed the list of demons he had faced. All of them were scarier and more willing to tear him apart than Sansone. Then he said the Lord's Prayer to himself in many languages. He mirrored Sansoni's body language. Sansoni was flanked by two members of Team Two, whom Manchu had seen but never met. They were large men. When did Team Two start employing nightclub bouncers? And they did not look at either Sansoni or Manchu. Finally, Manchu looked at his watch, quirked an eyebrow at Sansoni, and rose from his chair. He was at the door with his hand on the knob when she spoke up. Arturo, she said, her voice mild and pleasant. Where are you off to? I've been here for five minutes, Manchu said. You clearly have nothing to say to me, and I have responsibilities. This won't take a moment. I only need you to tell me, where is Sal Brooks? Before Manchu could answer, she added, as if it was an afterthought, oh, and how long has she been possessed? Manchu looked into Sansoni's eyes. Sal left for the hospital, I would guess. She went after the battle. She was injured. All true, from a certain point of view. And the possession, Sansoni asked, raising her eyebrows. We're unsure what happened to Sal. After we settle things, we can make certain she's all right. Manchu's heart began to pound. And the possession, Sansoni asked again, softer and slower. Hillary, I can't tell you anything I don't know myself. If your people went off after every single suspected possession, then there would be no need for Team Three, he said. I will let you know when I know something. That was the first lie. He started making a list for his next confession. Forgive me, father. He broke eye contact and put his hand on the door handle to go. Sansoni went back down. Father Manchu, you do realize that when we find her, we will have to remove the demon from Ms. Brooks. If she is possessed, of course you will. So you are of the opinion that she is not possessed? Manchu's back was still to Sansoni, but he heard the smile in her voice. He turned back to face her. Hillary, our archives were attacked. We have injuries, priceless books were damaged or destroyed. There are numerous, as Team One would say, priority one demands on my attention, among them learning our teammate status. When we're sure demons won't attack the archives again, and that nothing inside the archives is an immediate threat, will be. Sansoni's voice cut through Manchu's like an axe. You don't consider Sal Brooks an immediate threat? She has had complete access to the archives. That remains to be seen. We will let you know what we find, Manchu said and opened the door. We're not done, Arturo. Sansoni said, you may not be done, but I have to lock down the archives and I am through playing games. If you have a genuine complaint about me or my team, take it up with Monsignor and Julie. Now, I have a job to do. He left. Before he shut the door, he heard Sansoni say, so do I. Give me a challenge, why don't you? Liam grumbled, fingers stabbing at his laptop. The R kept sticking, which made hacking into security cameos difficult. First, he accessed the ones outside Sal's apartment building. No record of her entering the building, Liam said, scrolling through the archived video of the last hour. The demon disappeared, Grace reminded him. It likely teleported her somewhere. Wait, there she is. She pointed at the screen where Sal was leaving the building. But that's not her. Of course it is. She's even wearing the same clothes she had on during the fight. Liam said, glancing up at Grace's stony face. Now, look at the way she's walking. That is not how Sal moves. That's not her. It's still inside her. Now maybe Manchu will listen to me, 
Liam grumbled and was rewarded with a slap to the back of his head. Do you want her to die? Grace asked. I want you to realize she's already dead. The next step will be hard enough. Liam's throat went dry as he watched Sal walk in that very un-Sal-like way. When she gets better, Sal will never forgive you. I hope you can live with that, Grace said. Then, as if they hadn't been arguing, she pointed to where Sal had left the camera's view. She's turned north, follow her. For the next few minutes, Grace looked at a map while Liam hacked the security cameras along Sal's route. Most of them caught her, striding purposefully down the sidewalk. She made a call and then kept going. When she approached the doors to Monroe Shoe Designers, the Monroe security cameras went black. Liam tried to access the other street cameras in the area, but all of the cameras cut out at the same time, when Sal reached the doors. Well, now we know where she is, Liam said. Nothing makes cameras go dark like considerable magical activity. Let's tell the others, Grace said. She cast a withering eye at Liam as he was closing his laptop. And by that, I mean Asante and Arturo. Lay off me, Grace, Liam said in a low voice. Grace left, and it was clear she expected him to follow. Liam sat down once again and opened his laptop, scrolling through the various surveillance video they had found showing Sal. It was her, but it clearly wasn't. He wouldn't let himself hope. She was gone. And now his job was to keep his team safe. Where's Liam? Asante asked as Grace entered the library. Uh, bathroom, maybe? He was right behind me when we got to the Vatican, Grace said, looking back over her shoulder. But he should be here shortly. We need to move. We found Sal. Please tell me she's close, Asante said. Monroe shoe designers, Grace said, a few blocks from her apartment. Asante frowned at the orb, still dark and silent, on her desk. I think Liam and I will have to knock this thing about a bit when all this cools down. It's not telling me anything. And then I will fix a computer because I used Liam's once, Grace said. Asante smiled at her. Fair enough. But the orb's all we have, and if we don't fix it, we're sitting in the dark. She looked up at the ruined ceiling where some lights flickered bravely among the shattered bulbs. Literally. Manchu entered the room and winced at the destruction, as if he had forgotten its extent. Please, someone tell me something good, he said. We've found Sal, and she's close, Grace said. That will do, Manchu said. Get Liam and let's get down there. Asante nodded at Grace. Go ahead, I need to gather a few things, she said, and Grace walked toward the ladder. No, you have to stay here, Manchu said. The archives are compromised, we need someone here we can trust. Asante resisted the urge to snap back. Let me at least give you three some equipment. What equipment? Manchu asked suspicion in his voice. Asante rolled her eyes. Nothing dangerous, new silver crucifixes. Yours are probably tarnished black by now. She went to a file cabinet that sat beside her desk. It had survived the battle, but only barely. The side had been smashed in, and black soot covered it. She unlocked the top drawer and struggled with the handle. The dent in the side made it impossible to remove. Grace and Liam returned, Grace's face a mass of storm clouds. Grace, can you open this for me? Asante asked. Grace trudged over, put one hand on the top of the cabinet and one on the handle. With a yank that looked half-hearted and a screech of metal, the drawer came free. It was full of files, all badly scorched. How were these damaged? Asante asked out loud. Then she reached behind the folders and found a box made of carved cherry wood. She glanced up and saw that Manchu and Grace were badgering poor Liam. The boy didn't deserve this, 
He was grieving, but couldn't show it. Stupid, but understandable. She opened the box and removed four shiny silver crucifixes with her right hand. One remained in the box. With her left hand, Asante picked up the small silver knife that lay under the necklaces. It was about the size of a letter opener, but very sharp. She didn't know where it had come from. She had received it from Seamus before he left the order. She once kept it on her desk, trying to hide it in plain sight, but its proximity made the orb malfunction. Some might say made the orb nervous, so she hid it with her spare silver. She had used it once, the last time the archives were attacked, during the few days between Seamus's handoff to Arturo when they were short-staffed. The team had brought in a book that wasn't locked down. Asante had put it on a stack for shelving, but when the team left the archives, the book popped open and began reading itself with eyes and a mouth drawn on the inside cover. Sticky webs began covering the wall, and Asante had no time to alert anyone. She searched through her silver for anything she could use, and she found her knife. In retrospect, she was relieved that the cabinet hadn't been damaged, because though the webs covered her skin to wrap her up, she was able to retrieve the knife and slice herself free. The web shriveled where the knife touched, and Asante slashed her way through the fibers until she found the book teeming with tiny spiders. She couldn't close it since the book began chanting even louder, so she stabbed the knife straight into its pages. The book exploded. She never wanted to feel anything like that again, especially at her age. The knife pierced the open book and the volume on which it rested, mixing the magic inside them and destroying both. The team found her sitting, dazed, among the ruins of two books. She had told them the books exploded when she tried to move them, and they believed her. She had asked herself why she didn't put the knife, which didn't tarnish like normal silver, in the archives with the rest of the artifacts, why she didn't give it to Manchu after she learned to trust him or even offer it to Grace. She told herself it was because she didn't know how it worked, but Asante knew it was an excuse. The knife was a gift from Seamus, and she didn't want to have to give it up. They might also take it away from her based on the fact it was a magical artifact she shouldn't have. But Sal was alive and Seamus was gone. And anyway, the man's other parting gifts hadn't gone so well. Memories were enough. Asante handed necklaces to each team member and then pulled Liam aside. Are you gonna tell me how selfish I am too? He pushed his chest out and lifted his chin. No, I'm sure you've gotten an earful already, Asante said. I wanted to give you this trinket. She handed it to Liam, handle first. He accepted it. With a glance over his shoulder to see if Grace and Manchu were looking, he shielded the knife with his body and gave it a careful inspection. Asante, he said, his voice sounding more like his old sardonic self. Have you been hiding a magic weapon? Us against the rules. Desperate times, Liam, she said, smiling at him. Carefully, it's sharp. The sheath was lost years ago, I'm told. Now, listen, I've only used it once, and the results were unexpected. I can't tell you when to use it, I can just tell you it's powerful. Might as well give me a flamethrower without telling me which end the fire comes out of, he said, his grip on the knife becoming more tentative. Why are you giving this to me, not Grace? You want the lie that makes me look good, or the truth that doesn't, she asked. Liam actually considered the answer. The lie first, then the truth. Grace can handle herself, she already has magic on her side. It's a curse, but it's magic, and it helps her in these scenarios. You don't have that. Liam frowned. That actually sounds like a plausible reason. What's the truth? Asante stopped smiling. 
If I give it to Grace, Menchu will know, and he will take it away from me. If I use it, he will probably notice, Liam pointed out. It tends to pay attention when we're fighting. It's a chance I'm willing to take, Asante said. Porcel, I believe in her. I want you to believe as well. Liam took a shirt out of his backpack and wrapped the knife in it, then put it in the front pocket of the bag. I can't promise belief, Asante. That's impossible. But I can't promise I'll do everything I can as if she were still alive. That will have to do, she said. She gave his crucifix a little tug. And don't take this one off either. One dream of it, Liam said. Then suddenly he bent down and kissed her cheek. Thanks, Asante. She put her palm over the place he had kissed and stared at him. Miracles do happen, Liam. You're proof of that. Liam knew the knife was a test of something. He just wasn't sure of what. Was Asante testing if he would tell Menchu or not tell Menchu? Was it a test of his loyalty to Team 3? He could easily tell Team 2 about the knife. They'd be interested in Asante's other secrets, too. Was it a test to see if he'd turn to a crutch in a fight? The knife made him feel heavier as they barreled through the city streets in a cab. It felt odd, just the three of them. Odd already after only a few months. He had been magically tied into the internet and they'd gotten him out. Grace had been locked in a box for decades and she'd been rescued. Why was he so reluctant to admit Sal might be saved? He knew the reason. Like Asante, he knew the lie he told himself and the truth underneath. When Sal had changed, when she had become the hand, he saw a look in her eyes of pleasure and triumph, and he'd seen that look before, when they were in bed together. And that scared him. How long had she been like this, more hand than Sal? Had he been close to the demon? Had he made love to it? He shuddered. And if he couldn't tell a demon from Sal, he was in the wrong line of work. Sal's betrayal made him question everything, everything about his own life. No praise from Menchu would help, no confession, no drunken bar fight, no violent video game, no sparring with Grace. He couldn't trust any of them. Grace and Menchu were reviewing their plans, and Liam stared out the window and thought about the knife in his bag. It was a test, but what kind? Monroe Shoe Designers' corporate offices were in an older building. It had been spruced up with security cameras, but the door was still locked with an old-fashioned bolt. Menchu ordered Liam to pick the lock, and he set to work. Liam had to put away his computer, which was ready to hack the security code, and get out his seldom-used lock picks. As he inserted his tools into the keyhole, he thought again of what a waste of time this was. Dealing with possessions was Team Two's job. What was Grace gonna do, anyway? Not hit the demon-controlling Sal? The pin inside the lock slipped off his tools, and he patiently went in again. He expected Grace to get impatient, but she waited a few feet away, giving him space. She and Menchu watched him work. One more try, and the bolt was free, letting them into the offices. Their ears were attacked first, with the screams of what sounded like hundreds of demons down the hall. The hall carpet was sticky with blood and ichor. Oh no, he said. It may not be Sal's blood, Menchu reminded him and sprinted down the hall, followed by Grace. Liam felt dizzy. He fell to his knees, his backpack sliding off his shoulders, screaming inside. Stop being paranoid. Don't feel, just do your job. The collapse could come later. For now, he had demons to fight, and if one of them was his ex-lover, then so be it. 
Hands were on him, strong, small hands. They gripped his shoulders and pulled him up. Grace. He expected worse abuse than her quick slap on his cheek. Her voice was oddly gentle. Come on, I know it hurts, but Sal needs us. Can you do it for her? Liam nodded mutely. He picked up his bag and ran after her down the hall. Somewhere in the back of his mind, he noticed that his jeans were filthy with the gore that soaked the carpet, but his backpack was pristine. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Five. The light pushed through Sal as if she were a window, and she felt the hand's hold on her lesson. Then she realized it was because the hand was easing out of her body into the body that lay before them. Once it animated that monstrosity, who knew what it could do? The hand had been clear enough about one thing. Tearing her to pieces would be the first order of business. Weaponless, teamless, and surrounded by demons, how could she fight him? She had to stop wishing for grace. That wasn't a good use of a wish. Not that she had any wishes. If she had, she would have prevented this from happening all the way back to Perry taking up his weird hobbies in high school. If the hand hadn't possessed Perry, she would have avoided Team 3, numerous flirtations with death, and a very unsuccessful love affair with one of her only friends in a foreign city. Yes, prevention was better than cure. 
Good old vaccines, a fence at the top of a cliff instead of an ambulance below, a condom instead of plan B. She realized the madness surrounding her was causing her to retreat into her thoughts. She forced herself to see the world around herself. She could see the hand now, a red mist creeping from her pores into the body in front of her. The eyes opened, a purplish red. They looked around and fixed on hers. Soon. Grace rapidly took in the scene. A room that clearly was too large for the building that held it. A portal made of bone, glowing as it slowly opened. An inner demon body on the floor and scores of demons, most of them so transfixed by the spectacle in front of them they didn't realize humans had arrived. And Sal in the demon's midst, immobile, with the demonic light shining straight through her to illuminate the body. Most of the demons were human-sized or smaller, and Grace figured they'd be little trouble to kill, so long as they didn't swarm her. She'd leave the portal to Menchu. Liam would have to deal with Sal. The demons hadn't noticed her, but Sal, or whatever was in her, did. Her eyes flicked to them and held Grace's. They were desperate and afraid. They were Sal's. Liam had seen it too. She's still in there, Liam said from beside Grace. His voice was soft with wonder. Manchu frowned, his mustache drooping low. Liam, help her. Grace, keep the demons off us. We have to destroy their portal. They began inching behind the demons along the wall toward the portal. Grace crouched between the men and demons ready to be noticed. One thin head with an incredibly long beak, or maybe it was a stinger, had begun to turn when Sal screamed. Go, Grace said, and they went. Clever Sal, a diversion to keep the demons focused. At least Grace hoped it was a diversion. Sal didn't want to enjoy a few moments of freedom just to be devoured. If that was her choice, she'd stay with the hand a little while longer. But how? It had been weakening all day after using most of its power to escape with the Codex Umbra. Since then, the hand had used the power of its sacrificed friends, not itself. She could feel its fatigue, its desperation to move into its new body and the strength it offered, to tear open the portal and welcome more demons into the world. Sal could even control her own body now, focus her eyes elsewhere, like on the door opposite the portal, which was sliding open to reveal Liam, Grace, and Manchu. She looked at them, met their eyes, and saw each of their faces change. Grace looked relieved, Liam anguished, Manchu determined. They took in the scene and began to move. The hand was slipping away from her, as if it had gotten its head and shoulders through the birth canal, and now the rest was easy. Not that easy, Sal said, determined. And then she laughed. She had control of her mind again. She wanted to keep the attention of the demons, so she screamed as loud as she could, and they moved in eagerly. It was almost feeding time. A few demons near the back noticed Grace and Liam and Manchu, and bodies began to fly. Manchu and Grace had reached the portal close behind Sal. The light intensified. It was nearly open, and the hand was nearly out of her. Grace was fighting the demons with more finesse than Liam had ever seen. He wished they could take a moment to enjoy this because she truly was a master. She had grabbed a small humanoid demon with a crocodile head by one hand and leg and was swinging it around like a weapon, impaling demons and stabbing them right and left with the spines on its back. Manchu studied the arch briefly and then touched Liam's arm. How do we dismantle it? He asked. Find the keystone. Liam said, his eyes flicking around the gory arch, seeking the bone that held the thing together. There, 
he said, pointing at a rib cage at the top. Bust that up. I'm gonna go help Sal. He had no idea what he was gonna do. She didn't seem to be held by anything he could break, not even a magical tentacle. Something screeched, and Liam looked up to see the crocodile demon flying over his head, then crash straight into the ribcage keystone. It shattered, and the bones tumbled to the ground. The portal faded. The light went out. Sal stumbled and sank to her knees. Liam rushed toward her. He put his hand on her shoulder. You're okay now. We got it closed, he said. No, we're pretty damn far from okay, she said. It's out. Liam blinked. What do you mean? The remaining demons around them were staring at them, unmoving. They had even stopped attacking Grace, who hadn't let that stop her from attacking them. The hand, it's not inside me anymore, she said, staring at the bloody carpet. That's good, isn't it? She raised a shaking hand, dirty and lacerated, and pointed to the body in front of her, which had begun to stir. The demons hadn't been staring at them. They had been staring at the body on the floor, not dead, like Liam had thought. Alive, animated, rising. It's very, very bad. That was the hand in a fresh body. Liam saw her now, 100% Sal. The possession hadn't been her fault, and she'd been fighting this whole time. He could still trust her. This was his test, if there had been any test at all. He reached into his bag and grabbed the knife. The hand got to its feet, flexing its new limbs. Its eyes still glowed with hatred as it surveyed the damage Team 3 had done. Then it fixed his eyes on Sal. My vessel, it said, its voice so deep that Liam felt it in his chest. Your time has come. Liam pushed the knife into Sal's hand. From Asante, he said. I don't know what it does, but I bet you can figure it out. Her eyes met his, and then she looked at the knife. She smiled. You're okay, Liam. The hand had raised a fist and uncurled its fingers, like a very sharp, very venomous flower. Each claw dripped with venom, and Liam shouted to Grace and Menchu. Sal stood up suddenly, pushing the knife into the hand's belly and up into its chest. Not your time yet, asshole, she shouted. Usually at moments like this, the demon's eyes would grow wide and it would crumple or shower the humans with blood and goo. Liam had seen enough death that he thought he knew what to expect. He didn't expect the demon to outright explode. Sal opened her eyes. A severed demon arm lay in front of her face and she grimaced and pushed it away. She was covered in demon gore and hurt all over. Her mind was full of screaming, a rage unlike any she had ever heard or felt. No words, only emotion. It had worked, sort of. She had killed the hand's new body, so it seemed to have gone back into hers. But she was still in control, the hand had weakened. Great. Beyond the screaming, she could hear Grace finishing off the demons. From the looks of it, some had fled and some had gotten caught in the blast when the hand exploded. As for Sal, except for the bruises from where she had hit the wall, she seemed relatively unscathed. The knife was still in her hand, twisted and blackened. The Codex Umbra, the book they had nearly died for multiple times, lay to the side, burning with a white-hot fire. Should have gotten a book sleeve for it, she thought. Asante's gonna be pissed. Liam ran toward her through the demonic mess. Sal, are you all right? She nodded and tossed the black and twisted knife on top of the Codex Umbra. Might as well stack all the ruined magical items together. 
We stopped him. Ah, the fucker is dead. Piles of demon meat, Liam grinned. Sal shook her head. Menchu hurried over to her. It's still here, she said. Back in me now. She tried to point to the body, then realized it was spread out all around her. Menchu nodded. The lesser of two evils, he said, and reached down to help her up. We'll figure this out together, Sal. Come on, we need to get you somewhere safe. Sal looked up. Safe? What do you mean? Menchu's mouth compressed into a straight line. Come on, he said again. They had almost reached the door when it flew open. Team One soldiers rushed in, training rifles and spears on Sal. Two familiar figures trailed Team One into the room. Good job, said Balloon. We'll take her from here, said Stretch. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.